Ronnie and Reggie Cray. The infamous Cray twins have long been etched into London's criminal legend. The Crays ruled the city with fear and their fists. In a period of excess, they brushed shoulders with film stars and politicians before their behavior became too wild to ignore, as did the trail of blood and terror they left across London's streets, pubs, and clubs. Courting publicity and pursued by scandal, they loved to mythologize themselves. But when it comes to the craze, where does reality end and legend begin? This is The Craze Part 2, Bloodlust. Twelfth of December, 1966. Her Majesty's Prison, Dartmoor, Southwest England. Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell stands up straight in a stretch and rubs his back. His breath dances in front of his face, but despite the cold, he still needs to wipe the sweat from his brow. He looks about, taking in the early morning mist hanging low over the Devonshire moorland. He lays down his shovel and starts to walk. Leaving the other members of his prison work party, he heads over to the sole guard watching them and asks if he can go over to feed some of the wild ponies grazing on the edge of the field. The guard grunts his permission, and Frank, the mad axeman, walks over to the group of small horses, mournfully chewing the sparse tufts of grass. But when he gets there, he walks straight through the bemused animals. He hopes the guard isn't paying attention as he keeps going, It doesn't take him long before he meets the road beyond, where a car is waiting, just as planned. Inside the car are three members of the firm, the criminal gang that make up the Cray twins' inner circle. He smiles at the men. For someone who has been in and out of prison all his life, this is freedom at last. They set off with haste. It takes five hours for the alarm to be raised that Frank Mitchell is missing, but it is far too late. The men are in a celebratory mood and joke all the way back to the city, where they take Mitchell to a safe house on Barking Road in East Ham, London. Mitchell is met by Ronnie Cray, and they embrace warmly. The two had become firm friends during the 1950s in Wandsworth Prison, where they had spent time incarcerated together. Since then, Mitchell has been serving a lengthy prison sentence for his role in a string of violent robberies. He had been promised early release on the grounds of good behavior, but that promise has stood unfulfilled for four long years. That is, until his old friend Ronnie decided to take things into his own hands. The Crays hole him up in the Barking Road flat, 
with the intention of using their good standing with the press to lobby for his official pardon. And as Reggie puts it, to stick two fingers up to the law while they're at it. Things, however, don't go to plan. With the craze, they rarely do. As his name would suggest, Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell is hard to contain, never mind control. As the days pass and the authorities refuse to budge, a huge police manhunt engulfs the city for who the press are calling Britain's most violent convict. Mitchell feels increasingly alone, isolated and agitated. Cabin fever strikes. He stomps around the flat, rageful, drunk, shouting, smashing furniture and raising eyebrows. It is hard not to notice the volatile entity living in the small flat down the hall, and neighbors are gripped with fear. Then, at his wit's end, Mitchell starts threatening his saviors, the craze. In response, they bring him some company, a woman who works in one of the nightclubs called Liza. Starved of contact and affection, and after years in prison, Mitchell falls for her head over heels. On Christmas Eve, 1966, as the fairy lights twinkle and carol singers serenade the East London streets, a member of the firm named Albert Donahue knocks on the door of the Barking Road flat. Mitchell answers. Finally, it's time to go. Liza, however, is told that she isn't coming. Better if you go separate, Donahue tells her. Bespotted, Mitchell doesn't want to leave her, but is eventually persuaded by the promise they will be reunited at their destination. He is led outside to a large white van. He sucks in the cold, wintry evening air, flooded with relief, freedom again, at last. The back door of the van opens and Mitchell climbs in. Albert Donahue stays outside on the tarmac, surveying the empty street. Twelve muffled gunshots ring out. The problem of Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell has been solved. A hit squad assembled by the craze has taken care of business. Taking one last look around for witnesses, Donahue goes back inside to tend to Liza. What was that noise? She asks breathlessly. Where's Frank? It was a car backfiring says Donahue. You go now, and if you breathe a word of this to anyone, we'll find you, and we'll kill you. Liza disappears back into London's nightclubs, and Frank Mitchell's body is never found.
History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. The infamous Cray twins now dominate the London crime world. From east to west, from pool halls and porn shops to clubs and casinos, they are everywhere. Their tendrils of fear run deep, carried on an undercurrent of violence. Ronnie and Reggie hobnob with high society and have friends in high places, from the press to parliament. They feel invincible. But as they become media sensations themselves, they also grow complacent. Ego begins to play an ever bigger role in their unpredictable behavior. And with Nipper Reed, Scotland Yard's hotshot detective breathing down their necks, the twins can ill afford to slip up. Frank Mitchell's murder represents one of the only occasions the Crays themselves feel they'd made a mistake. Or at least, that is the case for Reggie. Born just a handful of minutes before his brother, Reggie has always played the part of the older sibling. He's the calmer, more collected of the two. While Ronnie has been in and out of both prison and psychiatric care, Reggie has been quietly growing their criminal empire. He runs the show, demanding loyalty from those around him. But at the end of the day, it's only his brother he really trusts. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, the vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. In Reggie's opinion, basically, most people are a bunch of shits. With most people, it's self-first, self-middle, and self-bloody-last. And when the crap hits the fan, it's every man for himself. Recently, however, Ronnie's behavior has brought more heat than ever. Walking into the blind beggar pub and shooting a rival gang member, George Cornell, 
in front of a number of shocked witnesses. He's more erratic than ever. At times, Reggie appears to be the only thing holding it all together. But, as always, the Krays band together and act decisively, using the trusted firm members to sort out the mess. One such member is Freddie Foreman, a long-standing family friend, known on the streets as Brown Bread Fred, because in Cockney rhyming slang, if you cross Fred, you end up brown bread, dead. It is Brown Bread Fred who is waiting in the van on Christmas Eve 1966 when Frank Mitchell steps inside. Kate Beale Blythe is a writer and documentary filmmaker and the author of The Craze, Prison Years. She has spent hours interviewing the Craze's closest associates and listened to the stories from those who were there. Freddie Foreman was a friend of the Cray twins' elder brother, Charlie. And if you Google Freddie Foreman, he'll come up as the enforcer of the firm. An enforcer, in my lay understanding, is somebody who makes other people do stuff they don't really want to do. Freddie Foreman has remained in the public consciousness for, you know, since the 60s. He's this sort of mythical figure again of this, you know, the, the crazy enforcer. But as a man, he's a very reflective and very honest chap. Foreman would later reveal, after his release from prison, that Frank Mitchell's body had been found in chicken wire, weighted down and cast into the English Channel. But after two very public murders in quick succession, people are starting to talk, or rather, quietly whisper. No one dares speak out, or, God forbid, criticize. No one wants to upset Reggie or Ronnie Cray, even trusted members of the firm. The Crays operated on fear. You know, there was the discussion of, you know, was it fear or love? But ultimately, it was fear. And people were too afraid to speak and too afraid to grasp them up because that was the code. That was the code of the villains of the time and it was the code of the East End. So you didn't grasp up your friend or neighbour or your friendly local protection racket. The police, led by the incorruptible Scotland Yard detective Nipper Reed, are in no doubt about who is responsible. They are already investigating the death of George Cornell, who was shot at point-blank range in broad daylight in a crowded pub. And yet, they can't seem to find a single witness. But when Frank Mitchell disappears, the heat on the craze and the firm intensifies. The unrelenting Nipper Reed keeps digging. He knows with added crime comes added loose ends. The beginning of the end is messy, and it's messy for two reasons. It's messy because the twins are spiraling, and they are because they're doing really stupid things publicly. But equally, one wonders how good a manager they are if their only management tool is fear. So naturally, the firm members would be getting uneasy, would be feeling unloved, unsupported, all those basic management things that you need to do to keep your team on board. The firm, that impregnable circle built on loyalty and prestige, is getting nervous. 
very nervous. Just as Ronnie's antics are escalating, and the firm tries desperately to sort out the growing mess, Reggie becomes increasingly distracted. The object of his attention is a woman. He soon finds himself wrapped up in a love of such potency and intensity, it consumes him. One can hardly be surprised that the twins attract romantic interest, given their standing at the time. They were fashionable, popular men with money. And in a time when that counted and that mattered, because they've come out of a period of not having any money and not having any of that glamour because it's you know, East End bombed London. And they're, and they're in a period where people want to be seen with them and people want to be seen with people with money and glamour and celebrity. The exotic excitement the craze represent is far removed from the grim post-war years that had plunged so many into poverty. These are local boys made good. They seem to have it all. Enter Frances Shea, a local East End girl who Reggie, by all accounts, becomes smitten with over a number of years. Introduced to the famous Cray twin by her brother Frank, the two grow inseparable and eventually marry. Away from the cut and thrust of the life he has built with his brother, Francis is the perfect tonic to the madness, and Reggie becomes increasingly reliant on her as his support. So Francis, by all accounts, and I do think this is true, you know, was a sweet young girl who didn't quite know what she was getting herself into. And what she saw was the glamour. She saw the fact that the twins were well known in the area she grew up. You know, they had a strong mum figure, which is, you know, is always a good thing, actually, to see boys who love and treat their mum with respect. So there was not a lot about her other than the fact that she was a nice young woman who was you know, awed by the glamour of Reggie and married into the firm. The Shea family had their concerns about the union, with Francis's own mother pleading with Francis not to go through with it. Apparently, not everyone is so awed by the craze. Reggie, however, considered Francis the apple of his eye and had pursued her relentlessly, proposing twice until Francis eventually agreed. The wedding itself was a grand affair, no expense spared attended by the rich and famous. Still, Francis's mother wears black to mark the occasion. Now, Francis adorns Reggie's arm wherever he goes, almost becoming as well-known as he is. Apparently, she's presented with racks of dresses, heavily discounted, of course, when she steps foot inside a store. She's Mrs. Reggie Cray, after all. But perhaps her mother's concerns are not without merit. This is a relationship that seems to mirror the circumstances that surround it. Intense, unpredictable, filled with glittering highs and tragic lows. Despite how things may appear on the surface, down below, out of view, things are perhaps less than perfect. There'll be some who say that he went off and he ignored her. But there are others that you know, say he adored her. And, you know, the question then lies of where does adoration and love become control? 
And no one really knows that unless you're in the relationship. But you hear accounts of him sending you know, a, a clothes shop with a wardrobe with a rail of clothes to her house so she could choose what she wanted to wear or she was treated like a princess. But is that love or is that control? I'm not sure. The old adage is that you can choose your friends, but not your family. And the family that Frances marries into is one of a kind. It is widely believed that Ronnie is deeply unsettled by the addition of Frances and doesn't hide the fact. There is the theory that Ronnie was jealous of Francis. Whether that is true, we will never, ever know. And you hear so many different accounts, it, it's hard to actually find the truth in that. But logic would suggest you know, that twin relationships are different and special, so therefore marriage into a twin relationship is always going to prove difficult. These twins in particular are closer than most. Ronnie becomes isolated. To him, Francis is the wedge driving the brothers apart. Away from the domineering men of the story, often omitted from retellings, are the central roles played by the women. The principal two being Francis herself and the twins' mother, Violet. It seems Violet is as wary of the pretty young interloper as Ronnie is. Francis, aware of her husband's close bond with his mother, does her best to please and fit in. But it's a clash of personalities, and not one Francis is going to win. I talked a lot to Maureen Flanagan, who was Violet's hairdresser. It was the idea of Francis wouldn't say boo to a goose, and Violet ruled the roost. It's a pressure cooker for young Francis. Given the cold reception from her brother and mother-in-law, you'd think her husband would provide peace of mind. But Reggie's own volatility, his criminality, and the associated violence haven't been dimmed by settling down. On a few occasions, Frances sports bruises. She often leaves the marital home, always on the promise that this time it's for good until Reggie pleads for her to return with gifts and apologies. Her own mental health begins to spiral, and she begins to see doctors to help. She moves in with her brother, Frank, to give herself some space. But Reggie pleads for one more chance, and even books a second honeymoon for them abroad. Neither get the chance to go. On the morning of the 7th of June, 1967, Frank Shea knocks on the bedroom door to bring his little sister a cup of tea, like he does every morning. He places it on the bedside table, assuming Francis is fast asleep and goes out to work. Tragically, she won't be waking up. The doctors rule it suicide by drug overdose. Though there are some that suspect foul play, What we do know about Frances is that she you know, died tragically young. The official account is that she took her own life 
And I am inclined to believe that account. But the other accounts where, you know, did Ronnie murder her or did Reggie murder her or did you know, what actually happened, I think come more out of the craze ideology and mythology and legend than actually the truth and the reality of what it was. I think you know, she was a lady in an unhappy marriage and didn't see a way out. And I think that is a tragedy in itself. Reggie, consumed by grief, organizes a lavish and hugely expensive East End funeral. A long procession winds through the streets, and giant wreaths spell out Francis's name in roses. Whatever the truth about their relationship, Reggie is broken by the loss. In the months that follow, Reggie drinks with abandon and visits Francis's grave with determined regularity sometimes several times a day. His friends and associates worry about him as an added air of volatility creeps into his character. Ronnie's behavior isn't improved by his brother's distance either. The Cray twins are more unpredictable than ever. It's the 29th of October, 1967. On a quiet street in London's East End, muffled music rumbles from a street-level window. As a baseline rolls beneath the dead of night, a flashy sports car pulls up outside 97 Evering Road. The occupants jump out and approach the property on the end of the terrace. In the building's downstairs flat, owned by a couple of showgirls, a party is underway. Booze, music, and conversation are flowing in equal enthusiastic measure as Ronnie and Reggie Cray enter. People are enjoying themselves, drinking and dancing. But the atmosphere simmers for a second as everyone realizes who has just walked in. The Crays seem not to notice. They are used to the reaction. They enjoy it. They each get a drink from the table in the middle of the room, then retreat to sip liquor in a quiet corner. The brothers are preoccupied. The police are swarming ever closer. Other gangs are pressing in on their turf. And every day carries new pressure. Reggie sits there, his eyes roving and watchful, his mood dark. Before long, there is a voice on the stairs. Hysterical laughter announces the arrival of Jack the Hat McVitie. He walks through the front door, full of brio, excited, shouting, Where are the girls? Reggie sees him, gives one look to his brother, and they are up. Jack, the hat, hasn't even had the chance to pick up a drink yet when Reggie Cray is in his face, spitting fury. The topic? The 500 pounds the Crays had given McVitie to kill a former employee. McVitie had pocketed the money. The temperature rises, neither man backing down. And before anyone has time to act to soothe the situation, Reggie is pointing a revolver in McVitie's face. 
McVitie thinks it's a joke, but Reggie, goaded by Ronnie, shouting, Do him, Rage! pulls the trigger. But nothing happens. The hammer clicks, impotently. McVitie isn't laughing now. White as a sheet, he stands there, stunned, as Reggie wastes no time in swapping the gun for a knife. In full view of the party-goers, the record still turning on the LP player, Reggie sets upon McVitie, stabbing him with such rage, such fury, such abandon. The level of carnage and bloodshed is shocking even to the hardened criminals in the crowd. Reggie is relentless, plunging the knife into McVitie's chest, stomach, throat, and face. Even Ronnie looks at his brother with surprise. The screams subside, and the room falls silent, all eyes fixed in terror on Reggie Cray. The crime is astonishing in both its violence and its brazenness, especially considering that most people felt that Jack the Hat was essentially a nobody, hired muscle. Jack the Hat was a low-level gangster, didn't really mean much in the firm. He was just one of the usual operatives who was in and out of favor. And he annoyed them, and he made the mistake to annoy them on the wrong day. There is the theory that the reason Reggie murdered Jack the Hat was because Ronnie was encouraging to get his kill in. Not sure if that's true, but it is generally thought of that Ronnie encouraged Reggie on the night from witnesses who were there. But Reggie stabbed him. The murder of Jack the Hat stuns the firm with a collective horror at what their bosses are capable of, and a collective fear of how it has thrust them all into the spotlight of another murder investigation. Yeah, the apartment was a showgirl's apartment. I think it was two girls lived there, but it was a party. So again, it shows the hubris and the the ego of the craze, the fact that they think they can get away with murdering somebody at a party and you know, equally then having to phone up people to you know freddie foreman was phoned up to come and sort it all out and sort the twins out you know they involved people the lambriano brothers freddie foreman the twi- you know, people were around people saw it it just shows quite how far they'd gone in terms of their arrogance of thinking they could get away with anything Ronnie and Reggie want nothing to do with the aftermath, exiting into the night. They delegate the cleanup to trusted firm members, who themselves are in panic mode. Namely, Chris and Tony Lambrianu and Reggie's ex-soldier chauffeur, Ronald Bender. Reggie has left McVitie and the flat in an ungodly state. The body is wrapped in a sheet from one of the upstairs bedrooms and the Lambrianu brothers and Bender carry the body outside to McVitie's car. But at over six feet tall, they can't fit him in the trunk. After a frantic discussion, they agree to put the body in the back seat and drive across to nearby Rotherhithe and leave the car outside St. Mary's Church, 
the hope being that whoever discovers the body will believe it is the activities of another criminal gang. When the twins find out the next day, they are incandescent. Not only will this cause an almighty scene with a bloody corpse left by a church, but this is not just anybody's patch. This is brown bread Freddy Foreman's patch. You don't just dump a body on a mate's doorstep. It's not the done thing. The twins don't know what else to do but call brown bread Fred and ask for his help yet again. The murder was pure sort of gamesmanship. It was you know, more than a step too far. And Freddie Foreman having to come and sort out the twins. You know, and there was a resignation and annoyance that he's had to come and clear up their shit, to be honest. And he's doing it because he's friends with Charlie, he's friends with the family, he cares about the twins. You know, he, he knows that they all have a reputation to keep. He knows that they have business to continue. And having to clear up their mistakes, which I think you, Jack the Hat, was clearly a mistake, more than a mistake, it was murder. I can understand the frustration of Freddie Foreman and why he would see the operation of the firm and the twins' you know, legacy as simply criminal failure. Freddie once again swoops in to save the twins' bacon and again makes sure that another of the crazed victims is never found. But the toll of this on Foreman and the entire firm is evident. There had been too many high-profile mistakes happening for some time. Mistakes that have dragged them all under police scrutiny. The body count is mounting, and nobody knows what bloody tragedy is just around the corner. Many thought Ronnie was the unpredictable one, but after Reggie's killing of Jack the Hat, McVitie, all bets are off. To walk in and shoot somebody feels more clinical than to stab somebody to death. To stab somebody to death, you need to be up close to their face. You need to be close to their body, the blood, you see the reaction. Whereas walking into a pub and shooting somebody is a slightly more distant way of doing it. So for those who say, you know, Ronnie was the mad one, Ronnie was the one who was, you know, the paranoid schizophrenic, you need to think about the murder that Reggie committed, which is far more of a brutal, up-close, visceral murder. So many murders and so many witnesses. And yet, still, nobody wants to talk. But that doesn't stop the police from trying their hardest to uncover information. The investigation into McVitie's death intertwines with the investigation into George Cornell's murder, and Scotland Yard pressures witnesses relentlessly for a break in the case. If Detective Nipper Reed can get just one person on the stand to testify in court, to say clear as daylight that they saw either one of these murders, he was convinced the rest would fall into place. In the meantime, the Crays are constantly on the move and laying low, never in one place for long. Their drinking and drug-taking is spiraling. The twins still keep a close eye on their nightclubs, sometimes secretly attending themselves, and keep a firm control of those around them. 
Witnesses who meet them during this period describe them as coldly menacing with a no-nonsense approach. There is an atmosphere around them that is deeply threatening. Simply put, you do as they say and make no mistake. Away from the dance halls, the police have a breakthrough at last. They've got a witness, a good one, one who has agreed to tell it all in court. An operation is planned, the biggest of its kind. All they have to do is pin the brothers down. If only they would stay in one place long enough. Dawn, 9th of May, 1968. Braithwaite House stands tall, silhouetted against the unforgiving gray morning sky. Throughout the 19-story high-rise building, all is silent. But at ground level, things are heating up. The central London streets around Bunhill Row are littered with unmarked vans. Inside them, Hiding in plain sight are over 100 of Scotland Yard's finest officers and metropolitan police detectives, all waiting on the word of one man, Leonard Nipper Reed. What they are attempting is, quite simply, the biggest raid in the history of the Met Police. The streets are empty around the base of the huge structure that houses not just floors and floors of council flats, but also the home of Violet Cray, mother of the notorious Cray twins. And Nipper knows she isn't home. Nipper knows that somebody else is using the flat in her absence. Taking one final look about the deserted streets, he finally gives the signal. Go, he announces. Car doors slam, the officers moving quietly and with speed. Nipper Reed, true to form, is at the front. Inside the entrance hall of Braithwaite House, Nipper calls the lift, and as many officers as possible pile in. Others take the stairs, making the long climb up to the ninth floor and to flat number 43. They exit the lift. No signs of life. Satisfied, they line up at number 43. Nipper takes a breath. Hours, days, weeks, months, years of work have gone into this moment. It's been in his head all that time, playing on a fantasy loop. But behind them, the lift pings and the doors open. The officers turn, guns raised, fears that they might have been tricked suddenly rising to life, when out steps a milkman with a bemused and terrified look on his face. He quickly retreats and goes back the way he came. Inside the apartment, all is at peace. Reggie and Ronnie, in neighboring bedrooms, snooze silently when... The door crashes open in a hail of splintering wood. Cries of the police echo through the flat 
and all hell breaks loose. In one bedroom, Reggie Cray sits bolt upright, sleep-heavy eyes clearing to find guns pointed in his face. His young female companion listens in terror as Nipper Reed informs him with calm, practiced clarity. You are under arrest. In the other bedroom, Ronnie, somehow still sleeping, is also awoken next to a young man and given the same news. The police are rightly wary of how the twins might react, but despite their reputation, they are relaxed. It's not the first time they've been arrested. Even the famously wild Ronnie seems unfazed. All right, just let me get my medicine, he tells them. Within moments, the twins find themselves handcuffed in the back seat of a Jaguar sports car as they burst through the breaking morning with the sound of screaming rubber. They smile at one another. What a lot of fuss. A murder charge means nothing. Not to them. They're untouchable. Aren't they? Next time on Real Outlaws, we go in the dock with the craze as the biggest and most famous expensive murder trial in the history of London's famous Old Bailey gets underway. Loyalties are tested to the limit and oaths are broken. Nipper Reed's career is on the line. But for any who dare give evidence, the stakes are far higher. Will the Krays maintain their fear-induced silence? Who's the mystery witness and will their nerve hold? And will the outcome of the trial finally bring an end to the Krays' criminal empire? Find out next time on Real Outlaws. <laughs>